This is Music Notes and More with your host, Jason Ginty. Nirvana gets unplugged. Children help Pink Floyd. Keith Richards was born. Elvis meets Nixon. ZZ Top takes a bullet and a Christmas classic is born. Let's take a look back at the week of December 15th in music history. This week back in 1984, Do They Know It's Christmas by Band Aid entered the charts at number one and stayed at the top for five weeks. Now, it became the biggest selling single of all time with sales over three and a half million in the United Kingdom. It went on to great success in the U.S. and around the world as well. Now, Band-Aid was a mastermind uh, project by former Boomtown Rats singer Bob Geldof, who had been moved by a TV news story of famine in Ethiopia. So Geldof had the uh, idea of raising money with a one-off charity single featuring the cream of the current pop world. The bigs, if you will, Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Paul Young, Culture Club, George Michael, Sting, Bono, Phil Collins, Paul Weller, Rick Parfit of Status Quo, and Bananarama all appeared on the recording, and you can still hear it every holiday season to this day. This week, back in 1993, MTV aired Nirvana's Unplugged session for the very first time. Now, the session featured an acoustic performance taped at Sony Music Studios in New York City on November 18, 1993. Now, unlike many artists who appeared on the show, Nirvana filmed its entire performance in a single take with the band's 14-song set list, included six cover songs. Now, the prospect of an entirely acoustic show made Kurt Cobain very nervous. Nirvana ended up rehearsing for two days prior to the taping. The rehearsals were tense and difficult with the band running into problems performing various songs. During the sessions, Cobain disagreed with MTV as to how the performance should be presented. MTV was unhappy with the lack of hit Nirvana songs in the set list due to all the cover songs and with the band's choice of the Meat Puppets as guests saying that they wanted to hear the right names like Eddie Vedder or Tori Amos or other big relevant names at the time. Upset the day before filming, Cobain refused to play. However, he appeared at the studio the following afternoon. Cobain was suffering from drug withdrawal and nervousness at the time. There was no joking, no smiles, no fun at all coming from him. Therefore, Everyone was more than a little worried about how this performance was going to go. Cobain suggested that the stage be decorated with stargazer lilies, black candles, and a crystal chandelier. Cobain's request prompted the show's producer to ask him, you mean like a funeral? To which Cobain replied, exactly like a funeral. The set ended with a performance of the traditional song, Where Did You Sleep Last Night?, following the arrangement of blues musician Leadbelly, whom Cobain described right before the song as his favorite performer ever. This rendition has been regarded as one of the greatest live single-song performances of all time. After the band finished, Cobain argued with the show's producers who wanted an encore. Cobain refused because he felt he could not top the performance of that song. This week, back in 1979, Pink Floyd started a five-week run at number one on the singles chart with their song, Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2. Now, this is a protest song against rigid schooling, and it features a children's choir. Now, at the suggestion of their producer, Bob Ezrin, 
Pink Floyd added elements of disco to the song. Another brick in the wall appears in the wall film. If you've seen it, you know that in the part two sequence, children enter a school and march in unison through a meat grinder, becoming putty-faced clones before rioting and burning down the school. David Gilmore recorded his guitar solo in one take with no editing or mixing or any sweetening up of his solo. The children singing on the song, that was something that was not anyone from Pink Floyd's idea. The producer and engineer came up with the children singing the chorus idea. You see, while the band was away from the studio, they brought in kids from Islandton Green School, which was a school close to Pink Floyd's studio. The kids spent a week practicing before they recorded their parts. According to Pink Floyd's producer, when he played the children's vocals to Roger Waters, there was a total softening in Roger's face, and you could just see that he knew it was going to be an important record. Waters said, quote, It was great, exactly the thing I expected from a collaborator. The song received a Grammy nomination for Best Performance by a Rock Duo or Group, but Floyd lost to Bob Seger's Against the Wind. Chris Robinson of the Black Crows was born this week back in 1966. Along with his brother Rich, Robinson formed Mr. Crow's Garden in the 1980s, having been heavily influenced by The Faces and The Rolling Stones. In 1989, Mr. Crow's Garden changed their name to The Black Crows. They played one date, opening for ZZ Top, when Chris complained about bands having corporate sponsorships. He went on this long rant on stage in his set opening for ZZ Top. Well, this led ZZ Top to kick the Black Crows off their tour because ZZ Top was sponsored by Miller Genuine Draft. In 2000, Robinson married actress Kate Hudson, and they had a son uh, together in 2004. Chris and Rich Robinson have long been at odds with each other. Their fighting has broken up the band numerous times. They have recently reunited once again in late 2019, and they have a tour planned for 2020. It was this week back in 1963 that James Carroll, a DJ at WWDC in Washington, D.C., became the first disc jockey to broadcast a Beatles record on American radio. Carroll played the song, I Want to Hold Your Hand, which he had obtained from his stewardess girlfriend, who brought the single back from the United Kingdom. Due to listener demand, the song was played daily every hour. Now, since it hadn't been released yet in the States, Capitol Records initially considered court action, but instead released the single earlier than planned, which, of course, was the right call. It was this week back in 1943 that Keith Richards was born. Nicknamed the Human Riff, guitarist, singer, songwriter, and founding member of the Rolling Stones, who have had over 35 top 40 singles and albums. Yes, that Keith Richards was born this week in 43. Rolling Stone magazine said Richards had created rock's greatest single body of riffs. He's been around longer than anyone who's lived a lifestyle like his should. While on tour with the Stones, Richards says he once was arrested at gunpoint in Arkansas in 1975 in a van containing a load of controlled substances. He says, quote, All you had to do was pop the panels from inside the van 
and there were plastic bags full of coke, grass, peyote, and mescaline. Somehow, the police missed all of it, and a local judge was persuaded to let Richards and his bandmates go free after confiscating the guitarist's hunting knife and having a picture taken with him. As a struggling young musician, he shared a flat with Mick Jagger and Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. Now, what they did was they rigged up an improvised recording studio in the bathroom, largely because when the toilet flushed after a performance, it sounded to them like applause. Keith Richards has only been married twice. His first marriage was to Anita Pallenberg. She had actually been dating Brian Jones, but left him for Richards when they were all on holiday one time in Morocco. Now, they were together for more than 10 years, but according to Keith Richards, she had a little bit of a fling with Mick Jagger in that time. In 1983, he married actress and model Patty Hansen, and they've been together ever since. Keith Richards owns over 3,000 guitars. It was on his 38th birthday that uh, he was playing with the Rolling Stones at a show in Hampton, Virginia, when a fan rushed the stage. Keith saw the fan coming at him, so Keith unstraps his guitar and hits him with his guitar. As security intervenes, Richard straps his guitar back on and continues playing. Now, Keith Richard's public persona was famously used by Johnny Depp as an inspiration for his Oscar-nominated performance as Captain Jack Sparrow in the Pirates of Caribbean movie franchise. Now, aside from his role as Captain Teague in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, the only other acting that Richards has ever done is when he appeared as a soldier in the 1969 film Man on Horseback. He's also, of course, appeared in episodes of the TV show The Simpsons. Now, according to his 2010 autobiography, which I highly suggest you get because it's awesome, Richards attested that when the Rolling Stones were at the peak of their popularity, he was only getting two nights of sleep per week. That's drugs, baby. The longest he went without sleep was nine days, which eventually led to him falling asleep standing up, crashing against the edge of a speaker, and waking up in a pool of blood. Now, the jokes about Keith living forever aren't lost in him. Richard says that if he had a say in the whole thing, he would like to croak magnificently on stage one day, but I'm not in a hurry. It was this week back in 1986 that at the Oakland Coliseum Arena, the Grateful Dead played their first concert since frontman Jerry Garcia slipped into a diabetic coma six months earlier. Now, with Garcia's health scare, it was unclear if the band would continue, but Garcia was on stage and singing and playing guitar, and he reassured fans with the opening number, Touch of Grey, as he sang, I will get by, I will survive. Jerry Garcia died in 1995. It was back in 1984 this week that Dusty Hill of ZZ Top is shot in the stomach when his girlfriend pulls off his boot and his 38 caliber Derringer falls out and discharges. The bullet is designed not to exit, but to do internal damage, which is bad, of course. He makes it to the hospital where doctors remove most of the bullet fragments, but fragments still remain in his back to this day. This week, back in 1970, a stretch limousine carrying Elvis Presley pulled up outside the White House in Washington, D.C. The driver 
handed over a letter from Elvis addressed to President Nixon requesting a meeting to discuss how the king of rock and roll could help Nixon fight drugs. Now, the president agreed to give Presley a Narcotics Bureau badge, but only after learning that the chief of the Narcotics Bureau had turned down the same request earlier that day and told Presley the only person who could overrule his decision was the president. So, after some prodding by Elvis and his people, he did get to meet with Nixon. And at Elvis's request, the meeting remained a secret for more than a year until the Washington Post broke the story on January 27, 1972. And there's that famous picture with Elvis Presley meeting President Richard Nixon. Now, keep in mind that Elvis Presley was meeting with President Nixon to help fight drugs. Well, fast forward to this week in 1979, Elvis Presley's personal physician was charged with illegally and indiscriminately prescribing over 12,000 tablets of uppers, downers, and painkillers for Elvis during the 20 months preceding his untimely death. Although the doctor was acquitted, this time he was charged again in 1980 and again in 1992 and was stripped of his medical license in July of 1995. The Elvis saga continues because you move forward to this week in 2004 and Elvis Presley's daughter, Lisa Marie Presley, agrees to sell 85% of his estate, yeah, that's right, Graceland, to businessman Robert Sillerman in a deal worth over $100 million. Now, Sillerman would run Presley's Memphis home, Graceland, and own Elvis's name and the rights to all revenue from his music and films. In the deal... Lisa Marie would retain possession of Graceland and many of her father's personal effects. This week back in 1971, David Bowie released his fourth album called Hunky Dory, which was the first to feature all the members of the band that would become known the following year as Ziggy Stardust's Spiders from Mars. There are two singles released from the album, Changes, in uh, 1972 and Life on Mars, which was released in late 1973. David Bowie himself considered the album to be one of the most important in his career. This week back in 1991, Joe Cole, an American roadie for the band Black Flag and the Rollins Band, was shot and killed in an armed robbery. Now, Joe Cole and Henry Rollins had attended a whole concert at the Whiskey of Go-Go and were returning home after having stopped at an all-night grocery store when two armed men described as black and in their 20s, approached them demanding money. Now, angry that Rollins and Cole only had about 50 bucks between them, the gunman ordered the two men to go inside their house for more cash. Rollins entered being held at gunpoint. However, Cole was killed outside after being shot in the face at close range while Rollins escaped out the back door and alerted the police. The murder remains unsolved. This week, back in 1985, Johnny Paycheck of the song Take This Job and Shove It fame is drinking at a bar in Hillsboro, Ohio, when two guys recognize him and sit near him. Then things get tense, and Paycheck pulls out a 22 caliber pistol and shoots one of them, grazing his head. That man, Larry Wise, claims that Paycheck got testy after they offered him a meal of deer meat and turtle soup. Wise says Paycheck yelled, what do you think I am, a country hick? And shot him. 
The country singer is convicted and serves 22 months in jail. Music Notes and More is written, produced, and hacked together by me, Jason Ginty, and is brought to you by Pirates of the Quarter Tours, the most unique walking tour of the French Quarter in New Orleans. Get the details at piratesofthequarter.com. And be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and be sure to check out my YouTube channel.